All right, so this morning we continue as we have been uh, our march through the New Testament, looking at each book, it's kind of taking a high-level overview of each of them, trying to draw out sort of general themes. And the goal of this, of course, as we've said, is to make it so that when you go home and you read through these books, which I've encouraged you to do through the week, that you have some general grid with which to approach these and, and understand a little bit of what's going on. And this morning we come to Mark. And so we're gonna begin looking at our gospels and, and we're gonna start with Mark. Um, and this morning we're just gonna read in. I'm gonna read just the, the first, it is actually the first uh, half of the first chapter. We're gonna read verses one all the way down through 13. And it reads as, as follows. It says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Judea were going out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locust and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the throng of sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. It's the word of the Lord. So today we're going to, uh, that section right there, we, we can, and I have actually done a, an entire month series on that. So that alone is, there's a lot in there that we, we just can't cover today. Um, let alone trying to cover the whole book. So what I'm trying to do today is pick up this introduction that Mark has given us and show how the themes that he's included here are gonna carry through the entire book. Um, Mark, as you may know, may, may not, it's the second one obviously in our canon, in our New Testament, but it is largely thought and sort of accepted scholarly to be the first one written. So Mark sat down and wrote his gospel first, uh, Luke will tell us that he has probably Mark and Matthew and another other sources that he's using as he crafts his gospel. Uh, we think that Matthew probably used Mark. Mark, actually 95% of Mark shows up in Matthew. Um, so we think that Mark or Matthew had probably Mark's gospel as he's trying to put his together. And then John obviously is something altogether different. Um, but Mark is one of the foundational documents for those other two, what we call synoptic or story gospels. Um, so one of the questions that gets asked sometimes is why if almost every bit of Mark is in Matthew, why do we have Mark? And one of the reasons for that is, well, all of the content is the same, but the way in which they tell that story is different. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. And actually the crux of what is, is being opened up here in this first section that we've read and what we're gonna talk about today is what is unique about Mark? What can we learn from reading that story by itself um, as a story uh, that Mark tries to, what is he trying to tell us? And that's, that's what we're gonna talk about today. So as we come to this first passage today, um, 
One of the words that you see pop up over and over, and I think it's at least four times, and, and the theme is there throughout it, but is this idea of the wilderness, right? And so the, as Jesus, or as Mark opens, um, he gives us, actually verse 1-1 one, one is thought to be the title. If you go back and read it, it says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is that? Or rather, what is that not? It's not a complete sentence, right? There's no verb in there. So we actually think that that is Mark's title. So the title of this gospel is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. But then from that point, he launches into a quote from Isaiah. Um, and we've talked before briefly, I think about the fact that that's a blended quote from Isaiah um, and Ezekiel. And he puts those together. And in there he talks about, or he uses the, the part from Isaiah 46, where he's talking about the voice crying out in the wilderness. Um, and that whole section of Isaiah, and we've, we've mentioned this before, is, is a picture of the, the new Exodus. This is the picture, the moment when Isaiah is talking about the return from Babylon. So it is that return from exile that Israel has been experiencing. And so for Israel at that time, in their past is the Exodus from Egypt. And so they are awaiting this new exodus, this physical exodus that would happen out of Babylon and allow them to go back. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. And as Mark opens his gospel, he picks up that quote and calls to mind that hope that as we've mentioned before, Israel is still hoping for because they've returned back to Israel, but not yet become an, an autonomous or sovereign nation. They don't yet have God back in the temple. So they still see themselves as in, in exile. Um, and so, Mark picks up that theme. And then as he carries through, then he talks about John the Baptist and John the Baptist is found where? In the wilderness, right? And, and more specifically, he's out. He's outside of Jerusalem. So if you can picture that map in your head, uh, out to the east, to the right on the map, towards uh, the Jordan River, he's kind of out in the mountains. There's this, some hills out there. Uh, it's wild and he's out there baptizing people outside the city that happens in the wilderness. And then Jesus, of course, comes to be baptized. And the moment that he's baptized, he has this moment where God comes down and speaks to him. And immediately Mark tells us what happens. Yeah, Jesus is thrust out into the wilderness. And in that little section there, it says, and the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He's with the wild beasts. Right? And so in that two sentences, uh, we get this theme of wilderness at least three times. Two times it actually says wilderness and third time is wild. And so what is it about wilderness that's important? Why does Mark open his gospel with this theme and this sort of idea of wilderness? So w what is the wilderness for Israel? If you think back to the Exodus story, the wilderness is the place that they have to go through in order to get to the promised land, right? So they come out of Egypt initially, they have this sort of harrowing moment at uh, the Red Sea where Moses parts the sea, they, they go forth through it, it collapses, comes back onto Pharaoh and his armies, and then they go on through the wilderness. And if you remember the story, of course, they end up there for 40 years because of some unfaithfulness, but that period of wilderness wandering is important. It is, it is the moment where they come out of what it was, their old life, and they're marching towards their new life, but they had this in intermediate period of, of wilderness wandering. Um, and even if they had done what God had asked them to do and not then been subject to 40 years of wandering there, they still had this wilderness journey. When Israel comes out of Babylon and they go through that exodus, there's that's it's a long journey if you remember our maps. Babylon is way off in the east in Persia. And so they have to wander through that wilderness to return back to 
their homeland in Jerusalem. And so the wilderness theme is this place of, uh, it is wild, of course. We, we read here in, in the opening Mark that Jesus was thrust out there with the wild beasts. And in Israel's um, sort of thinking about themselves and, and the wilderness motif, the wilderness is a place of uh, privation, a place where you obviously can't find a lot of food or water. It's why in the first Exodus, God provides manna and provides the food and drink they need. Um, it is wild, it is dangerous. Uh, there are other moments in, in the Old Testament where we read about some of the crazy animals that are out there. There were lions, there were uh, panthers. At, at that time, there were all sorts of wild animals that even don't exist there now, but we know are there that were dangerous. And so the wild is not a civilized place. It is, of course, the opposite. It is wild and is dangerous. And it is passing through that danger and that perilousness out of Egypt and again out of Babylon. It's going through the danger of the wilderness that they come into the promise, okay? And so Mark's gospel opens this way because this is a, an enormous theme for Mark is the passing through of trial and tribulation and suffering in order to reach the ultimate promise of God. It could be said, I think, and rightly so, that um, there is a biblical operating promise, operating promise, and that is that God renews his people, his nation, through suffering and trials. As you look back at the, the, all the stories, as God comes, whether it's uh, in, in this Exodus narrative or it's through the messages of the prophets, and certainly, as we're gonna see today, through the life of Jesus, renewal comes through pain, suffering, death. And there's no resurrection without death, right? And that, that is a reality that we need to accept and one that Mark, and I think this is one of the, real, the big reasons that the, those who put the canon together kept Mark, even though all of Mark's details are in Matthew, Mark tells it in such a way that we come face to face with that reality, okay? Um, this tempting that Jesus has is obviously in the wilderness, but for Mark, that is not his wilderness experience, right? This is, for Mark, as he opens the gospel, a uh, moment of foreshadowing. It is setting the stage. We're told by Mark, we're not told all the details. Remember in Matthew and in Luke, we get this moment where Satan will come and test him and offer him, you know, challenge him three times and Jesus responds three times. Mark says none of that. All we're told here is that, that Jesus is in the wilderness. He's, uh, he, he's what are his exact words? Um, he is tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beast, but the angels waited on him. So we just, what Mark does, he sets up this, uh, this battle, this tension, this spiritual warfare that he's going to then talk about. This is the moment after Jesus has been acknowledged by God to be his son, uh, that he'll be, he, this battle is now afoot, okay? And this is setting it up. The wilderness experience for, for Jesus is really coming, right? Is the second half of Mark, and we're gonna get down to that in a minute. We're gonna talk about what Jesus's wilderness experience on our behalf was, um, but this moment, this moment in the wilderness is setting up what will become a lot, many interactions within Mark between Jesus and the demons and the, the dark forces of the spiritual realm. Um, Mark has sort of two focuses as you read through it. There is certainly a focus on Jesus, of course. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, right? Um, but there is also an, an intense focus as you hear Jesus talk about God and God's sovereign kingdom. And we spoke weeks ago, and we've referenced again and again that the gospel ultimately is that Jesus is Lord. And in Mark's gospel, there is a heavy focus on God and God's sovereignty 
and God's kingdom. And so you hear right after this, Jesus pro- proclaims the kingdom of God. Um, and so God becomes in Mark's gospel, this transcendent, uh, mysterious, powerful aspect of, of God. The first person of the Trinity, the God, the father that we would call him, uh, is this power over and above. Jesus is the, the incarnation, the sort of flesh and blood r- relationship part of God. God, the father, his, Jesus' his father, as he refers to him, is this sort of transcendent thing or, or being. And God is not present actually in Mark's gospel, not as an active agent in the way that he is in the other gospels. He shows up twice. One we read this morning, which is where at Jesus' baptism, the sky opens and God descends. And it's interesting in this, in this uh, telling, Jesus hears it. There's no indication that anyone else does. In Matthew, Matthew will tell us that other people hear it. And the, the way God speaks in Matthew's gospel is, this is my son, right? Kind of, that's to somebody else. Like, this is my son. Here, Mark says, you are my son, right? So or, you know, Mark tells us that God says, you are my son. So this is a direct conversation between God. And so throughout Mark's gospel, there's this thing known as the messianic secret. And it's this sort of hiddenness of Jesus as the son of God. No one understands that. No one recognizes that. Um, and this moment is one of two. The other moment that God shows up is at the transfiguration, which comes in chapter nine in the middle of the gospel. When Peter, James, and John are with Jesus, Jesus becomes sort of this white glowing image and he's joined by Elijah and Moses. And God then comes and says to the three of them, this is the same thing. This is my son, the beloved, with whom, whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And then they go from that moment and are told, and they were kind of like scared and they, they don't tell anybody. So God shows up two different times, but not to the public, to the individuals he's speaking to. And that's kind of it. So God is sort of this distant, again, sort of sovereign transcendent figure that Jesus certainly points to, talks about, but uh, God becomes this very sort of powerful, um, again, sort of transcendent uh, figure here. Um, The way that God comes into the story is not only how Jesus talks about him, of course, but also how other characters talk to him. And for one example of that, or there are multiple examples of that, um, but one way that happens is through the exorcisms. And it is in Mark's gospel where we hear the, the demons answer back. And so God will come, or Jesus will come upon someone who is possessed and the demon will recognize him and say, what do you, what do you do, want to do with us, son of God, right? They recognize who he is. Um, and, and in Mark's gospel, Jesus will say to them, you need to be quiet, don't tell anybody, and he casts them out. And so there's this, there's this dramatic irony going on in Mark where we as the readers know who he is because Mark has told us this, of this moment here and we hear these demons speak back to him. We, of course, are in on the transfiguration and the moment where God says to Peter, James, and John who, who Jesus is. Um, but the, the characters in the story, the people of Israel, um, and the others that Jesus, Jesus comes into contact with, they don't yet know who he is. So there's this, this irony going on. Um, the Christian life for, uh, for Mark's gospel, as Jesus talks about what it means to follow, um, Jesus doesn't talk about following him in Mark's gospel. Jesus talks about following God. And so Jesus Jesus, the, the Mark in Jesus is constantly pointing everyone to God. It's always back to God. Um, there's, there's, not, there's not a, really a lot of talk about come and follow me that he, he doesn't really talk about himself. 
um, as a divine being, although of course we know he is, and, and Mark has tipped the hat to that. And so we're certainly not saying that Mark doesn't think that, but what we're saying is that the way that Mark presents Jesus to us is the messenger, the Messiah, who's pointing us to God. So does that make sense? Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why all the gospels are so important because they each give us a different facet of Jesus and of God and we need them all together, right? So Mark, Matthew's gospel is gonna say much more about Jesus as God. Um, and that's certainly important for us to understand. Mark here is telling us the ways in which Jesus is telling us about God um, as sort of, sort of the high supreme being. For Mark, um, there is this sort of unfathomable mystery to God uh, and Jesus will talk about the life, the Christian life, as being lived under the rule of God, right? And, and so when, when people ask him, what does it mean to be, uh, to be faithful, to live the right life, it always has to do with obeying God, right? It isn't follow me, be like me, it is obey God, which is a very Hebraic understanding. Uh, this goes back to, of course, the Old Testament. Um, and, and so we see a lot of those themes brought forth in Mark. So sort of to summarize that whole idea, if we, if we wanna talk about the spirituality or how we relate to God through Mark's gospel, the spirituality of Mark's gospel is what we would say is theocentric. That is God-centered, first person-centered or first person of the Trinity-centered before, not to the exclusion of, but before it is Christocentric, which is Jesus Christ, right? So it is more about the power and awesomeness of God and then secondarily about the nature and being of Jesus. Does that, does that make sense to you? And so that the faith in God is faith in what God is doing through Jesus, as opposed to just faith in Jesus. Does that make sense? There's this power of God that's flowing through Jesus. And so, and which, to which we said kind of ad nauseum here that, that Jesus point us back to that first person of the Trinity. Um, and so because God is not present and active in the narrative, except for these two points. And because he is this transcendent being, the way in which we interact with that God is certainly through prayer. And this becomes a big theme within Mark's gospel. We see Jesus um, sort of moving away for times of prayer often, um, and it becomes sort of this routine of his and certainly becomes obviously a routine of ours, ought to, as we follow and are obedient to God, that we would access that God through prayer to him. Um, one of the questions we have to ask then, if we kind of set up, as, or as Mark has set up, sort of this theocentric, God-centric um, gospel is how, how do we, he opens saying this is the good news of Jesus. So how do we move from, a theocentric idea to a Christocentric? How do we put those things together? Um, and as I said earlier, it is a belief or, or the idea that God is working through Jesus, right? So it's, it's what God is doing through Jesus. And we see that play out as Jesus is speaking about God, right? He's speaking to God through prayer. Um, but there is an overwhelming sense in the gospel that Jesus is speaking for God, right? That he is that messenger. Um, and, and that comes out glaring um, a number of times. We, we read that the, the crowds are responding like, who is this messenger? With what authority does he speak? They're sort of in awe. And the way that he's talking clearly is coming across to his hearers as speaking for God. And so in terms of the structure of the gospel, there are really two halves. The first half 
kind of spans from the first chapter, the opening that we read through chapter nine. Chapter 10 is sort of this transitional chapter. Um, and then we get into the second half, which goes through the end in 16. So one through nine are the Galilean ministry. So as you, as you go back and if you read that this week, um, just, just kind of put a note or a bookmark at, at chapter nine or at the end of chapter nine, beginning of chapter 10, and, and note that this is the first half of the book. And what Mark tries to do or what he accomplishes in that first nine chapters is to identify for us who Jesus is, right? So we as the readers are hearing people, demons, God, say Jesus is the son of God. And we watch as this spiritual battle takes place. There are lots of exorcisms, like I said, lots of healings, lots of miracles. And those miracles are there, as Mark uses them, to tell us who God is, to establish, or Jesus is, to establish his messianic reality, his sonship, um, the, the Jesus that we know as the second person of the Trinity, all right? And again, we know that the people of the gospel and the characters don't. Um, and then in chapter 10, it shifts. And in chapter 10, we get what we call the, the journey narrative. And this is the moment where Jesus, Galilee's up, up north, right? So Galilee's up here, Jerusalem's down here. And in chapter 10, it shifts and the action moves. And this is the journey chapter where Jesus starts moving toward Jerusalem. And what was this sort of uh, hopeful, exciting first half of God, or God through Jesus confronting the evil spirits, we sort of get this hope of the exodus that, that Marcus set up. Like, here's the guy, here's, here's the anointed one that's coming to lead us out. Jesus, as he turns and moves towards Jerusalem, geographically and physically, begins to talk about suffering. And this is where he teaches his or tells his disciples that the son of man is going to his destruction. He's going to die. They don't understand what he's talking about. Um, but the story takes a dark twist here. What was sort of this real hopeful buildup of who the Messiah is in chapter nine begins to turn. And all of a sudden we don't have any more miracles. There are only two that are gonna happen. One happens in chapter nine. It is the healing of uh, Bartimaeus. I think if I remember correctly, his name. Um, Whereas the first, all the healings up to this point were to identify and get us excited about who Jesus is. This one is about discipleship. And there's another one, the other one happens in the 10th chapter, um, and that is the cursing of the fig tree. And that miracle is all about judgment. So the, the first half of the chapter has miracles that are all about the sort of the excitement, the power of God, the identification of Jesus. This is the guy, this is the guy. He's gonna overcome the powers. And then we get one that's about discipleship and another one about judgment. And from that point on, from chapter 10 and sent definitely into 11, 11, we get into Jerusalem. 11 starts the passion narrative where Jesus enters the city and then all the conflict really kicks up with the, the, the leaders and things get dark. Right? And this is one of the reasons that Mark sits by itself different from Matthew, because and this is an important thing to remember as you're reading Mark. One of the things we need to do in order to get what each of these writers are saying is allow them to speak for themselves. So often we come, and especially in this case, like I said, almost all of this appears in Matthew. And most, a lot of us in here have grown up reading these stories, we know them well, and what we do is we read Mark, but we have in the back of our head what Matthew and Luke said about it. And so we sort of complete the narrative and we allow the other gospels to say something to us that Mark is not trying to say to us. And so we have to kind of like set those aside. So like all of Matthew's happy resolution, we kind of like move to the side and, and, and kind of come and say, okay, if I'm reading Mark for the first time and I know nothing else, what does this say to me? And in that second half, 
we get teachings about suffering in that 10th chapter on the journey. And then in, in, in chapter 11, as we get into the, really the second half, the passion narrative, we get this one miracle that's all about judgment. I mean, even the miracle, as, as amazing as it is, is kind of like, oh, <laughs> what are you trying to say with that one, Jesus, right? Um, and so this first half builds it up and the second half just kind of like comes through and kind of slams us back down um, because this Messiah that has been talked about and shown to us, all of a sudden, the, first, the first, chapter, first half is about what Jesus is doing. The second half is about what is done to Jesus. Right? And he, he becomes confrontational, but it becomes about what the people will do to him. Um, and of course, we know that's gonna end up on the cross. And so that second half is all about the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion, ultimately the resurrection. Uh, but we're gonna see in a minute, not really even, a, I mean, it's there, but it's what is front and center is the pain, the conflict, the suffering that is brought about upon Jesus and a number of teachings where Jesus says, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to follow me, right? The talks of you know, picking up your cross and following me. Those happen in this section. And it is this second half, this is the wilderness experience, right? This is what Mark has set up in his introduction. This is Jesus going through the darkness, through the wilderness, uh, through the suffering, until we get into chapter 15 and on the cross, Jesus says, do you remember what Jesus' final words in Mark are? What was that? Not, it is, like, that's a Matthew thing, right? So here, here again, you're, you're right. That we have those in our head. Like, that's, that's our picture of Jesus. Mark's picture of Jesus on the cross is the cry of dereliction. You remember what those words are? Yeah. Elohim, Elohim, Labaksani, right? Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Mark tells our, our, our story to us, those are the last words we hear Jesus say, right? The last picture we have of Jesus is him on the cross abandoned by God. Now, there's some theological discussion behind there is like, is God, how does Jesus, the divine second person of the Trinity, abandoned by God? What does that look like? Like, that's a theological discussion. But in terms of the narrative, what Mark gives us gives to us is this suffering of Jesus, this confrontation, complete rejection through this week, beating, scourging, being drugged through this, the streets on, with the cross, hung up in front of everyone, suffering, and Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's, that's the end that we hear from Jesus. Um, in chapter 16, I, I wanna point this out, this is, uh, important for understanding what, what Mark is trying to say. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to chapter 16, it's the very end, and go to chapter or verse eight. Um, this, is, this is the resurrection passage. I mentioned he talks about the resurrection, but he doesn't, uh, it's definitely not a, a focus, which seems, sounds weird to say as a Christian, right? That, that the gospel could not be about the resurrection. It certainly is, but it's not the thing that Mark is trying to tell us most about this. Because at chapter, so this is the, this is the resurrection, um, Sunday morning, Mary and Mary uh, get up and Salome, right? They get up and they go to the grave and they find Jesus not there. And there, here's the angel and they're scared. And he says, do not be terrified, right? And he's, he says, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place he laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, that he is young, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. 
There you will see him just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. So they're, they're scared. Like what, they're not sure what's happened. Um, it says, and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now, if you get into the next section, does anybody have a heading? Like you know how there are headings? What does it say above the next verse? Okay, Jesus appears to some of his fathers. Sometimes it's in a footnote. In my Bible, it says the shorter ending of Mark. And then you skip down, uh, there's, and right after that, there's a longer ending of Mark. The, the, the actual scrolls that we have of Mark end at eight. The rest of this are endings that were tacked on subsequently, all right? Now, does that mean they don't belong? No, that means that the church felt that Mark needed an ending, that God saw fit to add it there. We, we're not questioning the authority of scripture here, but what we're saying is the original transcript, as Mark told us, it's possible that the end got torn off. We're not sure really what happened to it, but the earliest texts that we have that are in the original Aramaic and Hebrew um, stop there, which means Mark's gospel stops, right? That's why I said like the last thing we hear from Jesus in Mark is this cry of dereliction. And then we're told that the resurrection happens. But as far as we have sort of the most original forms of Mark, like we don't see Jesus. Jesus has foretold his resurrection and Mark clearly tells us that it happens. So there's no denial of the resurrection here. It happens, but it's just sort of left sort of mysterious. And one of the reasons for that is because what, what Mark is doing is writing to his readers at this time, we think probably shortly after 70 AD. So it's shortly after the fall of the temple, right? Um, and this is a time of persecution to his church, to the, to the Christians of this day, they're undergoing persecution. So Mark's gospel is, is very much about following Jesus. We said earlier that what, what the, the spiritual life of the Christian is in Mark's gospel is obedience to God. And the second half tells us it is about taking up your cross. And so obedience to God necessarily creates this conflict, which we see in the second half that, that Jesus brought about. It necessarily creates persecution, infighting. Uh, like following Jesus is not a peaceful thing, right? We we're told elsewhere that Jesus says that he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, right? So yet he is the prince of peace. So peace in the New Testament is about your relationship with God, right? The church's relationship with God. So Jesus comes to create peace there, a reconciliation there, but that necessarily, think back to two weeks ago when we talked about this idea of soft difference. What it means to be a Christian is to be necessarily different than the way we lived before or the world around us. And that necessarily creates friction. Um, and we see in the second half, the second half is all about that friction um, and, and what can happen as a result of that. And for Jesus, that meant death. And for his followers, the ones that Mark is writing to, it means persecution, expulsion from families, right? Lots of fighting, lots of people looking at them and thinking that they are less than human. Um, and, and so it, what it means, what Jesus says in the, in the gospel is that to follow me will be to pick up your cross and follow me. And so Mark's gospel is all about that reality. This idea that what it means to be a Christian is to enter into suffering. And you have to, because if we go back to the way we started with the Exodus, you can't get to the promised land without going through the wilderness. Right? There is no resurrection if there is no cross. If we don't have the second half, if we don't have the confrontation, the conflict, the anger, the suffering, the death, 
there is no promise of resurrection. And what Mark does so brilliantly in the way that he tells a story is make clear to us as Jesus' followers that what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to follow God as an obedient subject of the kingdom is necessarily going to entail pain and suffering. And this is where everybody says, okay, I'm out, right? Um, and that doesn't mean there isn't hope. Our other gospels get balanced with this and they're, they're amazing, hopeful things. Um, and that there's not that there's not hope here, but there's not a whole lot of joy in Mark, to be honest with you. It's a lot about this sort of dark side of the reality that what God's calling us to is going to hurt, right? Pruning hurts. And God's about doing it. Like God is going to remove things from your life, people from your life, habits from your life, ways of living. And sometimes that's gonna hurt. But you can't become the person that God wants you to if you don't go through that process. One of the sort of, and, and all, all the gospels say this, but certainly Mark, it's very clear, is that if I'm going to follow Jesus, there will be pain and suffering. That's just, that's it. you can pin that one to the wall. That's just the truth and the reality. So we certainly in American Christianity where we don't, we don't suffer. I mean, we prayed for Christians around the world that are truly suffering persecution and imprisonment and ostracization and, and sometimes even death. Like we don't, we don't suffer that. I know we talk about the possibility of that. And we're fearful of that, uh, but we don't, we don't do that really. I mean, maybe we have friends who think we're crazy because we believe in Jesus, but that's about as bad as it gets for most of us. And so this idea for us that uh, to be a Christian is to be called into suffering is completely foreign and it doesn't feel good. I don't know that it feels good for anybody, but it certainly doesn't. It's so, it's so foreign to our experience of being a Christian. But what, what the biblical principle says is you, you as a Christian, you, we're going there. You have to go there, right? You can't be transformed into Christ if we don't go there, right? So to follow Jesus, if I'm going to follow Jesus necessarily means I will suffer in some way. doesn't mean like all of my life is suffering, but there'll be times and places when I'm called to do that. A lot of times it's on behalf of someone else. I mean, the whole purpose of Jesus, right, is that he comes and dies and suffers for us. And often we are called to give up, to suffer in some way, to sacrifice in some way. Um, we certainly will grow through that, but a lot of times it's so that others can thrive, right? And sometimes our suffering is to relieve the suffering of others, but, but that's how it works, right? So a lot, of, a lot of times you'll hear, and this is a real quick logic lesson, right? So I was a philosophy major and I love logic. It was a great class. But um, a lot of times people say, well, I'm suffering, so I must be following Jesus. Logically, that's not an equivalent statement. There are lots of reasons you could be suffering and they're not always, always Jesus, right? You might be. The logically equivalent statement, I'm gonna say this and let it sit there for just a second, right? Logically, if the principle is, if I'm gonna follow Jesus, then I will suffer. The logically equivalent statement is, if I am not suffering, I am not following Jesus. Did you hear that? If I have not experienced, or if I'm not willing, or if I will not suffer, if I will not take up my cross, then I will not follow Jesus. I am not following Jesus. That's Mark's point. How do you feel about that? 
Not so good, right? <laughs> no one feels good about that, right? Um, what, do we do, what do we do with that today? So many of us, I think, and myself included, just want to come and worship. Probably don't want to hear the message that I just gave you, <laughs> that, Mark just, that Mark just gave us, right? This, isn't, this wasn't exactly the, the, like, the feel-good story of the year, right? Um, and that, that's uncomfortable to us because we just, we just want to come and, and worship our God and a lot of times be given a message that makes us feel good about ourselves and you know, gets us going out of here on a high that we can get through our week and then come back the next week. Right? And, and for a lot of us, that's the church that I know, that's the church I grew up in a lot of times. I mean, there, there were challenging things here or there, but a lot of times it was, I want to go to church to be encouraged and feel good and know that God loves me and all that's, all that's true. And we got to do some of that here too. We should do a lot of that here, right? But we hear things like, this, we hear Jesus say this and, and read how Mark tells us about Jesus and we, we, don't, we don't want anything to do with that. But if we don't want anything to do with that, then y'all, we're, we're sitting on the sidelines, like we're on the bench, right? If you want to get in a game, right? If you want to play football, you're going to get hit, right? Heck, if you want to play basketball, you're going to get hit. I played soccer. Soccer was the best sport because you hit people without pads, right? And it was legal, right? You could, you could dex, lay somebody out with no pads and then you could keep going, right? It, it hurts sometimes. Boy, was it fun, right? I love coaching it. I, I, coached at West for a while, like it's, it's just a great sport, right? But I mean, think about the things that you enjoy. I mean, we have this sort of that platitude that nothing in life that's good comes easy. You know that's true, right? And, and that's the same here, right? If, if you're not willing to step out and be uncomfortable, if you're not willing to suffer, if you're not willing to take some money that you probably, maybe you, you, you think you can't spend and donate it to charity, or buy somebody lunch that needs lunch, or whatever it is that you need to do. Maybe it's monetarily, maybe it's something else. Maybe you, maybe you gotta get, get a different job, or you know, I don't know what, what it is, but God is calling you to do something, to suffer in some way for the benefit of someone else and for your own benefit, to become more like Jesus. I mean, like taking up your cross, doing these sorts of things, this is the game. And, and that's the message that we don't get in Christianity. Like you, understand, you need to understand being a Christian means getting excited, right, about suffering, right? Getting excited about entering the game, right? The whole first half of Mark is Jesus going to battle with evil spirits, with the Pharisees, right? And then the second half is this sort of intense, the Pharisees coming and the, the religious leaders coming down on him hard, right? That's the game. And in the fourth quarter, man, it looks bad. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, right? But the moment after that cry of dereliction, what happens? If you know God, Mark's gospel, Jesus dies. And for the first time in the entire gospel, a human, the centurion, looks up and says, that was the son of God. Even when Jesus asked Peter, in Matthew's gospel, again, Matthew tells it a little differently. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus looks to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? And in Matthew's gospel, Peter says, you are the Messiah, you are the son of God. In Mark's gospel, Peter says, you're the Messiah. There's no acknowledgement that he is the son of God, that he is himself divine, 
right? And so in the narrative, as Mark tells the narrative, this, the death, defeat, this is the moment when it all comes together and humanity recognizes this, surely this was the son of God. And then comes resurrection. The church's witness happens in the midst of suffering and pain, faithfully done. You wanna grow the church? Get in your head. It's gonna hurt. But we're gonna do what Jesus has called us to do for the benefit of the others. And people are gonna see God through that. I mean, if, if we could become that church, put yourself on the outside for a moment, looking at that church, right? Lots of churches do great worship. They have great productions and they get lots of people to come in as a result. But if, you, if we can become the, the, the people, the God's people that other people look at and say, those are the people that will suffer. They will go through pain and agony to make my life better. That's a picture of Jesus that we need to give to the world. There is beauty and hope and joy and restoration, wholeness, meaning, purpose. All of that is on the table for us. But it means we have to go through the wilderness. We have to be willing to do hard things and sacrifice. And it's in that sacrifice that we witness the gift of Jesus, that we, be, we become Christ to others. It is in that suffering. And that's the beauty of Mark. That's why there's sort of beauty in the darkness of this gospel, that it is through that wilderness experience, through that suffering, that others can look at us and say, that's, that's something different. That church isn't just a show. It's just not fancy music and a light show. It's people who love each other and put their lives on the line for their community, and those of us outside of it. That's following God. That's being obedient to God and following Jesus, taking up our cross and following him. That's our challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we finish today, um, we recognize, I recognize that it is somewhat of a somber moment for us today as we are confronted by Mark with the call to enter the wilderness, to come to the Red Sea in that moment of terror, to cross, and then to go into the wilderness and wander with little provision, little hope, largely no knowledge of how this ends or whether or not it ends well, but to do so trusting being obedient to your call, knowing that it is in that wilderness experience, it is in the pain, the suffering that we endure for others, that others will come to recognize that you are God, that Jesus is your son. And the fact that we do that on behalf and in, in response to you and your son and with the power of your spirit, that others will be brought to you. We ask God that you would enable us to hear that truth, to wrestle with the part of us that wants nothing to do with suffering and agony and pain and sacrifice. Help us understand that you walk there with us, 
that you have gone before us, as Jesus says, and Jesus did. That you're not asking us to come do something that you yourself have not done. And that it is in engaging that battle and that suffering on behalf of you for the benefit of the world that we find our meaning and our purpose, that we are completed. And so God, we just ask for your, your wisdom and your power and your comfort as we struggle with that. We come now to, to worship you, Lord, to give you praise and honor, recognizing that you, God, are transcendent and powerful and mysterious, but that we have access to you through your son, through your spirit, And for that, we thank you. Amen.